You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sometimes and i'm greg Cott. i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i welcome musical collaborators zoe deschanel and m ward of she and him Plus, we'll discuss other actors and actresses who've tried to sing and review the new album from the globe-trotting Brazilian girls. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, outside of our public radio colleagues over at Marketplace, nobody loves numbers more than you. Uh, As we have said many times, $130 billion a year, that is the revenue being generated by downloaded music today. Any number that big, you know the government wants a piece of it, okay? What we're seeing is several states across the country looking to enact laws that will collect taxes on downloads of movies and music. We've had nine states consider laws like this so far. We have five states that are in the process of enacting them right now. California was a case a lot of people were looking at last year. It did not succeed in enacting a download tax, but that would have been key because Apple is based in California. Right. The way a sales tax works is, you know, you're a California resident. You buy something from a California merchant. You pay sales tax. I'm in Illinois. I don't necessarily have to pay sales tax, right? That's moot right now because the California law is on ice. However, in January, a law in Tennessee goes into effect. In October, a law in Nebraska goes into effect. What those laws are trying to do is, regardless of where the mythical store in the sky is, mm-hmm. or if there is not even a store at all, really, yeah, you know, a virtual download, store. Right, Amazon has facilities, right? But iTunes doesn't, really. Mm-hmm. It's just a computer bank. Regardless, they want a piece of any online download action. Let me quote the Tennessee law. They want to tax, quote, the retail sale, lease, licensing, or use of specified digital products transferred to or accessed by subscribers or consumers. In other words, anything you download of yeah. worth yeah. is going to be taxed. Jim, you've got an environment right now where people are hungry to try to figure out a way to make some money off this thing because nobody has been able to do that yet. I mean, it's a chaotic world out there. Peer-to-peer file sharing is is completely running roughshod over legitimate downloads of both music and movies. And now you've got the government involved. Wait a minute. We've got all this retail activity that nobody's making any money off of. So yeah. how, do, how do we figure out how to make some money off this? So you've got people like Paul McGinnis, the U2 manager, calling for a tax on every IP address in the world, essentially, to pay for all this downloading. You've got the Canadian Songwriters Association asking for a $5 fee mm-hmm. on every computer that is purchased 
in Canada, a $5 monthly fee in order to pay for downloading. You've got Jim Griffin, one of the big think tank operatives in the music industry, calling for a fee on broadband connections in the United States. So there's all this activity out there figuring out a way to make revenue off of this chaos. And right now, the big targets are the computer companies and the broadband providers. And that, that's the next phase in this, Jim, and this sales tax is the next step. I'm guilty of loving you, yeah. I said I'm guilty. But what can I do? I want to hold you. I want to squeeze you tight. But what might say she belongs to another and that ain't right. That's I stand accused from Isaac Hayes, who died a few days ago at the age of 65. A lot of people remember... Isaac Hayes primarily for one song, Jim, I think, uh, theme from Shaft, and rightly so. I mean, he won a couple of Grammys for it. He won an uh, Academy Award in the early 70s. He became a superstar mainly because of the soundtrack to that movie. But I think there's way more to the guy than that. And even that song in particular, I don't think people appreciate it for what it really is in terms of its influence on not only black culture but music in the last 30 years. Let's look at a little bit of the history of this guy. He started out as a songwriter at the Stax label in Memphis, Tennessee. Barely out of his 20s, had been gigging around Memphis, self-taught on saxophone and piano, came there as sort of a second-string piano player on Otis Redding Sessions, Mm. and ended up becoming one of the go-to songwriters in that Stax stable with uh, his co-writing partner, David Porter. Porter was the lyricist, Hayes was the arranger, and a melodist and a composer, basically. And the way they would work is that they would get together with these artists the night before, and they would just sling stories back and forth. And out of those stories would come the songs. And the next day, Hayes would be in the studio calling out the chord changes to the band, and in real time, they would actually be making these songs like Soul Man and Hold On, I'm Coming, and I Want to Thank You, yeah. uh, these classic Sam and Dave songs. They were really the voices behind Sam and Dave, and it was an incredible four-way collaboration between Isaac Hayes, David Porter, and, and, and Sam and Dave. Hayes himself had a personality that was larger than life. I mean, this guy was, first of all, shaving your head in, in the yeah. early 60s was not a common <laughs> thing to do, so he caused a lot of attention any time he walked down the Huge street. Huge man, you know? married many times, <laughs> yeah. 11 children. Yeah, you know, an incredible guy. He, you know, he'd be, we'd wear these turquoise pants and these, like, these gold chains, these gold mesh vests on stage, and it just had a huge personality. And in order to get the attention of the audiences when he would be playing these raucous nightclubs on Saturday nights, he would improvise these raps, these introductions to these songs. And a lot of people say it was the prototype for today's hip-hop, what he was doing when he would do these long preambles to songs like By the Time I Get to Phoenix or Walk On By. People in the South didn't want to hear Glenn Campbell. Yeah. But they did want to hear Isaac Hayes' take on Glenn Campbell and the empathy that he had for those characters. So two things I think really stand out for me about Isaac Hayes. One, he was an incredible listener. He had an ability to get you inside the heads of the characters that he was singing about. So by the time I get to Phoenix, you knew these characters in this song, and you empathized with them, and you understood why they were breaking up, and you felt a little sad about it at the end yeah, of the song. Yeah. I mean, you were heartbroken by the end of the song. 
And secondly, the orchestrations. He was a master, master arranger. He would completely reinvent these songs. His use of strings and horns was groundbreaking. In addition to playing piano and saxophone himself, just his ability to do these head arrangements basically in real time. It wasn't about writing out charts. It was about instructing players on where to come in and where to play, uh, much like Brian Wilson w- during uh, his Pet Sounds era yeah. in California. Well, and don't underestimate the power of that image. You know, the messianic poses on many of those album covers. Hot Buttered Soul, yeah. the name of one. You know, he was selling sex. He was selling a gangster hardness. He was selling a larger-than-life superhero character, and he did it very well. I mean, hip-hop's braggadocio in many ways stems from that, done less artistically. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at a like, theme from Shaft. Okay, it's overplayed. But have you ever really listened to Shaft closely? That, that song is amazing. I talk about his ability as a storyteller. He puts you on the street with this guy. And you can tell the narrator of this song knows Shaft intimately. He knows the streets that he's walking. Shaft was this uh, private detective, okay? Actually, a very good script by Gordon Parks. Uh, you know, it was considered a black exploitation movie. But you, you look back on that film, and it was very well written, very well scripted. The character was really well fleshed out. And Isaac Hayes' song, in four short verses, got inside the head of this guy. And then secondly, listen to the music in this song. There's a couple of things in this song that would have been sampled between them about, oh, you know, a couple of thousand times, you know, on hip-hop records. Think about that wah-wah guitar. He wanted something sonically to depict the relentlessness of this character. So he settled on this wah-wah guitar that cuts through the song. And then that hi-hat, that ticking hi-hat that's going throughout the song, that sense of the streets about to explode. Yes, the bomb. you, You literally hear it in this song. And those two elements alone have been sampled millions of times. And then he orchestrated this beautiful, sumptuous arrangement around it with the strings and the horns. It's just a master arrangement with a great, terse narrative. And four, in a, you know, a handful of lines, he paints a picture of the streets and of this character. It's theme from Shaft, Isaac Hayes dead at the age of 65 on Sound Opinion. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the cheeks? Damn right. Who is a man that would risk his neck for his brother, man? Can you dig it? Who's the cat that won't cop out when there's danger all about? Right on. You see, this cat shaft is a bad mother. Such a mother. What I'm talking about, Shaft? Yeah, he can do it. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. John Shaft. You are listening to Sound Opinions.
That is a little bit of Volume 1 from the duo She and Him, an album that Greg and I liked quite a bit. Matt Ward is, of course, a well-known name in the underground rock world. Uh, His partner in this project is Zoe Deschanel, the actress who was in Elf, and she was the older sister in Almost Famous, this summer's movie The Happening. We're going to talk later about examples where perhaps uh, actors trying to turn into singers didn't go quite so well. But this record we liked, and so we invited them by. Yes, indeed, Jim. They were on a national tour, their first one, and they stopped by for an interview and to play a few songs for us. Greg Cott and I are here with she and him, Matt Ward and Zoe Deschanel. Welcome to Sound Opinions, guys. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's start at the very beginning of how this collaboration began. It's probably a story you're sick and tired of telling. (laughs) But you were working on a soundtrack for film, and, and Zoe, you were in the film, and then you got put together. The director of the film, a gentleman named Martin Hines, he asked us to do a duet for the soundtrack, for the end credits. And so we got together to record it, and it was really fun. So this is the movie The Go-Getter? Yes. What, did he know you could sing? Yeah, yeah. No, he knew I was a singer. I, I've been a singer for yeah, since I was a child, and he thought we would sound good together. And I'm not sure if it was Martin... I, maybe Martin told you that I had a bunch of songs. Was it Martin, or did I tell you? Can't remember. I thought you told me about. Yeah. Well, I had been going writing, back a few years now. Yeah, it was, it was a while ago. And you two didn't know each other before then, or no, no. I yeah. mean, I was a big fan of of Matt, and I was sort of secretly writing all this music, and I had just like tons of music, and I recorded these little baby demos of them in the kind of in my bedroom, and somehow. I got up the courage to send them to Matt. So, Zoe, you, you can say definitively you had uh, M. Ward albums in your collection. Oh, yeah. And Matt, had you seen any of Zoe's I films? I've seen Elf, and I, I knew she was a great singer, and I remember thinking that she was a singer and also an actress. Like, maybe she already had records or something, and I was surprised to find out that she didn't have any. And the story goes, Zoe, that you've been writing songs since, like, you were eight years old or yeah. something like that yeah. is that true and recording them actually or well um i started recording i started writing when i was about eight but um i started recording music as soon as the mbox came out which is like a portable pro tools thing maybe it wasn't as soon as it came out but as i got one in like 2002 or something and i had all these songs so i just like started recording all these songs and and becoming a little bit obsessed with it and then I just had all these songs like in my computer that I'd written that I wasn't doing anything with and I just and then they just started piling up and piling up and I kept thinking to myself like I have to do something with these but I didn't know of a situation where I felt they would be properly represented. I just I only wanted to put them in the world if they were going to be you know well taken care of. So right. you didn't want to just float them on the net. Yeah, and I didn't want to just record them with any person I I kind of knew that it would take somebody very special to be able to produce this music and keep the spirit of it and also make it sound really good and so as soon as I met Matt I was like that's the guy to (laughs) I (laughs) if I get the chance like praying that that he would like the songs because you know that was like this is this is the that's the guy. 
That's cool. We're going to pick up the story, but let's let's hear a song first. What are we going to hear, man? What, what what's up? Take it back. A song from the record that Zoe wrote. Cool. Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward of She and Him performing their song, Take It Back. When we return after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our conversation with the band, and later we're going to review the new album from Brazilian Girls. I'm all out of luck, but what else could I be? I know he's yours and he'll never belong to me again. I
welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're hearing a little bit of she and him on the song Take It Back. The duo just performed that song live in the studio for us, and there's a lot of jazz cabaret influences in that song, and I asked Zoe Deschanel about that. I don't want to wonder whether you love me. I don't wanna so, Zoe, you've got this sort of other side of your life. Uh, people know you best from the movie world, but uh, you've been playing in this jazz cabaret project, right? And mm-hmm. it, that sounded like it may have come out of that experience a little bit, that, that particular song? or um, Yeah, I mean, just singing standards for years. Um, I love, you know, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart and a lot of these great old songwriters. And, and I think definitely that, that song, uh, I drew a lot of inspiration from those songwriters. Well, that that uh, raises a question, Zoe. I mean, in um, Almost Famous, yeah, we were talking before about yes. uh, Cameron Crowe. I knew you were going to bring this up. Well, Cameron Crowe's a friend of mine, and, and, and you know, I know a lot about what he put into making that movie. Yeah. And you really got, af- after uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing his mentor, Lester Bangs, you got the role, I think, that was near and dearest to his heart. One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed. It'll set you free. You're the the sister who gives this kid the key to unlock his future in the movie with those albums. Okay, this record will change your life. (laughs) Who in both of your lives, Matt and Zoe, did that for you? How how do you find Gershwin and Cole Porter uh, or whatever it is that first made you fall in love with music, each of you? Well, I think for me, like, it was a succession of different artists. I mean, when when I was a little girl, my mom had three tapes that she'd play in the car. It Mm -hmm. was was Linda Ronstadt, a record called Heart Like a Wheel, Mm. and then the Everly Brothers and Love and Spoonful. So, like, those three artists are, like, just burned in my brain. And then my parents were also always playing Bob Dylan, I mean, this sounds so obvious, but I saw Hard Day's Night when I was, like, nine, and I couldn't believe the way the music made me feel. Mm. It was like I watched it every day, I think, for, like, <laughs> months. Like, whenever I was allowed to watch a movie, I was like, a oh, Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. And then and then I think it, I was a little bit older when I sort of discovered the standards. Um, I, it was through listening to Ella Fitzgerald records. And Nina Simone in, in high school. Mm. Matt, what about you? What was that moment that, that, that you had this explosion that said, yes, this is my life? I don't know if I ever, I never really wanted to do this for a living, but there's definitely records that um, made me feel like it would be a, 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 um, a good life or maybe it would be a, a worthy way to make a living and hopefully a dignified way of making a living and... Um, that I guess probably if I had to pick one, it would be listening to Johnny Cash records that my dad played in the car, and um, and then later discovering this guitar player John Fahey, and um, between those two guys, that that covers a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah that's for yeah. sure. You know, it's interesting too. Uh, the aesthetic uh, that you're talking about here comes across in the rec- the way this record sounds, uh, Sheen and Volume One, but the whole idea of it doesn't have a fixed sense of time about it in terms of, well, God, that sounds like a 
a 2007 drum sound on that record, or that sounds like a, you know, a 1986 synthesizer. This record doesn't sound like a lot of stuff that's out there right now. It sounds like it could have been made in any era. It doesn't have a fixed, like, stamp date on it. Was that something that you were going for when you recorded the record? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm we're both, I think, bigger fans of recordings, analog recordings, than uh, most digital recordings. And um, we referenced, and I've been borrowing production ideas from older records um, since I started making records, and um, it's a fun challenge to um, borrow production ideas with with respect to um, the you know the geniuses that that discovered them and hopefully yeah i think having a a record live in a in a place in time that's not specifically uh, distinct is to its benefit it's one of those things where do you think about things like this when you're recording zoe that well obviously this is you know first kind of coming out party for you as a, a recording artist but it, it's it seems like this is the kind of record you could put on 20 years from now and it's not going to sound i mean hokey <laughs> you know what i mean the yeah i mean it was all in the moment. It was a very, really fun experience because everything that happened was of the moment and it came out of just the spirit of making music and it was very organic. And we recorded it on tape and we tried to use m- mostly, you know, real things as much as we, you know, as in like they're in the room, you know, like they're not digital. But we weren't tethered by that idea we weren't didn't feel like oh if we wanted to do something digital we'd be no we made this rule it wasn't we weren't rule bound but pretty much that's just where the tastes lay so well and the irony of of recording it that way for the final version of, of volume one is that as you were working on them i mean zoe you were in los angeles you're writing these songs you're sending matt your recordings up in portland oh yeah right yeah no by <laughs> email you know, all, you know all, which my, is like, all my demos i mean i recorded what's funny is that uh, all, all of my demos i recorded on garage band and on the <laughs> pro tools so like mm-hmm. that's i mean i have to say like if it weren't for digital technology like i wouldn't being able to play with harmony is like one, you know, one of the the things that I love most about making music, and and I just wouldn't be able to do that, you know. I mean, yeah. I might, but it would just be a lot, you know. If it weren't for Les Paul, you know. Yeah, there you go. It all starts <laughs> but, there. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, the most hilarious thing is that the the we put a little sort of hidden track on the in the end of the record of a uh, swing low sweet chariot that. I recorded all all vocals on GarageBand, like <laughs> on my computer, like in the middle of the night. And we had it mastered, and it, it sounds mm. like it's from, mm-hmm. like, because it's all hissy. And so it's like the thing that sounds the most old is the one that's the most the digital. Most digital. The most <laughs> new, right. Yeah. right. 
Why don't you give us another song, and if you can, illustrate a little bit about how that email back and forth went. I think I sent them I sent them to Matt, and it was like a week before I actually heard back, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, the whole week, I was like, I hope he likes them. And then I'm like, and I'm like, if he doesn't like them, it's totally cool. Like, I'll That's figure mean, out something dude. else. That's mean, dude. What were you doing <laughs> in yeah, that week? I, I think he was on vacation or something. I don't check my something. email that much. Um, <laughs> She's hanging on She's dying on the other end, and you're, you know. and you're like, don't check in your email. Right. Wow. You were like, I was on vacation. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you give us another song? Okay. Should we do which one? S- Smokey Robinson's sure. one? We're going to do a, a cover that we put on the record. Hold me 
M. Ward and Zoe Deschanel, she and him, with a song that uh, Smokey Robinson made famous. Now, it takes guts <laughs> to cover a song that's that well-known, that classic, and try to put your own stamp on it. It's a great song. It is a great song. I don't think we even thought about guts. <laughs> Just we, we love this song. Let's yeah. celebrate this song. <laughs> You know, the sentiments expressed in there are so complex. It's such a simple song, and yet it's a very complex song. You know, yeah. you love somebody, but you don't like them. Yeah. Which is like, that's deep. <laughs> I, don't know. I think it's just a deep line, you know? That's like my favorite. I mean, it's my favorite songwriting is songwriting that can can make something that is very complex, you know, can distill it into one line. I don't like you, but I love you. I mean, that's like a, that's a brilliant line. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, a model for your songwriting. I mean, this kind of you mentioned Cole Porter, Smokey Robinson, Gershwin, all these people, yeah. these classic songwriters. I yeah. mean, and that can be daunting too. Like, I'm measuring myself not against necessarily contemporary pop artists, but right. you know, these classic. I never. It was never like, oh, I'm going to write the song and it's going to be as good as this. It's just, I guess, you always just, you know, have these things in the back of your mind as you can't stop yourself all the time you ha- just have to express yourself and I think of songwriting as telling stories and expressing myself and in a way that is pleasing to my sensibilities and then I don't I try not to think too much about it other mm-hmm. than that yeah you can't I guess you know otherwise you'd stop dead in your tracks <laughs> now speaking of daunting challenges um the other issue that faces something like this Zoe is that you know you Obviously, there's a certain cachet attached with your name, and you could have had, you know, Timbaland produce the record and you know, <laughs> competed in that in that marketplace. You know, and the flip side of that is that there's a certain element of the of the buying public that's very skeptical about, oh, yeah. you know, somebody from Hollywood, somebody who's been in movies doing doing a record. You know, sure. they think everybody has to be in a box. Yeah. You know, she has to be in the actress box, and Matt over here has, has to, to be, be in the indie rock box. Yeah. You know, we don't want you. What are you covering Smokey Robinson for, dude? You know, now if you wanted to cover, you know, who's right. that'd be fine. But what do you? <laughs> to what extent have both of you fought to get out of those boxes? I mean. Every, yeah, I mean it. It it's just sort of a, the society in which we live. <laughs> it's a reflection of that that you know everyone does sort of get put in boxes. But I just I think that if you don't if you don't take those boxes seriously because they're being an actor it doesn't mean that you'd be a good singer or a good songwriter, but it doesn't mean you wouldn't be either. No, we we've heard Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan's albums. <laughs> <laughs> Yow. Yeah, I mean, so it doesn't mean you're good or bad. And it's like this I think of as a separate career. It's like I'm a different person in this arena. It's like part of the problem is as as an actor, you have a name that's attached to you, the person that is also the name of the, this product that you are, which is like this profession that you have this sort of it's like you're a product. And then I, as a person, I am a different thing. Zoe Deschanel, the person, is mm-hmm. different from Zoe Deschanel, the actor. And so, I, you know, I, I, it was important to me to have a different name on the project because I kind of, you know, wanted some separation between the two. Well, and it's there in the very anonymity of, of the way you named this project. Right? <laughs> she yeah. and him. Him and her. Us and them. <laughs> what, what about Matt? I mean, were you worried from the, the indie rock backlash of M. Ward? What are you doing making a record with a Hollywood starlet? I've, yeah, I've never been worried about it because 
the first thing I heard was the songs, and I knew the songs could stand up on their own, and um, that it's as simple as that. Content is king, as they say. <laughs> She's got the goods. It's about this music. That's the way that, yeah, that's the way it, I saw it uh, in, initially. Zoe Deschanel, M. Ward, she and him on Sound Opinions. It has really been a pleasure to have you guys here. Thank you. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. For those of you who tried but didn't make it Settle down, it's never what you think For more She and Him songs and footnotes on this show, go to our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to take a look at the history of Hollywood's rock and rollers, and we're also going to review the new album from Brazilian Girls. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Boy, oh boy, who could forget that, huh? Some some people may want to forget that song. Huge hit in the mid-80s. Eddie Murphy, Party All the Time. The reason we're playing that is because uh, Zoe Deschanel's presence in our studio really got us thinking about how infrequently Hollywood actors and actresses make the transition successfully to uh, you know making cool rock albums or uh, pop albums. And, it, you know, it it's happens over and over again. I mean, there's a, there's a half century of history for this sort of thing. And yet, at the same time, the batting average is so low. Yes. Um, Eddie Murphy had a huge hit, but uh, it's questionable <laughs> whether or not we needed to hear Eddie Murphy making an album in the mid-'80s. I think one of the reasons he did make it was he was so hugely successful. It was going to sell a half million, million copies just because of the name recognition alone. Didn't he get some help there from uh, Rick, James Rick James? Rick James, right? I think everything, the only few things that were good about that song were Rick James producing it. You know, I, I think, Greg, that there's a certain Hollywood mentality where uh, I'm a star, I'm super famous, people cater to my my every whim. Therefore, I can do anything and everything yeah. that I possibly would want to do. Now, I think when you have 
musicians and rappers in particular turn to acting. They are so used to projecting a persona on the stage that mm-hmm. they can be very successful. I think Ice T has become a very credible actor. Yeah. I think Ice Cube, depending on the film, does very well. But does it go the other way? Yes, there have been great examples. I know one you're probably going to mention, Ricky Nelson. Yeah. You know, people think of that as as the you know the ultimate '50s cheesy sitcom, but the guy was a serious musician who he had a, a very credible career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his parents were musically oriented. You know, Ozzy and Harriet, you know, they may have been this kind of milk toast couple on, on TV, but they were actually had very credible musical careers. I mean, Ozzy Nelson was a big band leader and uh, Harriet Nelson was a singer. And Ricky grew up with those musical genes and actually had a very credible sort of post-Elvis Presley-type career in the 50s. He had a number of hits, sold over 100 million records. But what I was really intrigued about with Nelson is how he sort of developed a second career in the late 60s and early 70s. He was one of those artists who picked up on the country strain in rock music. You know, he was right in the pocket there with people like Dylan and the Birds in terms of adopting those influences, bringing it into his music with the Stone Canyon Band. He was playing Dylan songs. You know, he was doing it, you know, yeah. they wanted to stick him on these oldies bills. There was an infamous show in the early 70s at Madison Square Garden where he was stuck on this oldies bill with a lot of the 50s rock and rollers. And, you know, everybody was there to see him play the old hits. And he got booed because he mm-hmm. wanted to play the contemporary stuff. And that's where that song Garden Party came from. It was kind of his way of saying to that audience, wait a minute, I'm not living in the past. Yeah. I want to do what's important to me now. And, and people may snicker and, and sneer at it, but the guy was a, actually a very credible performer, a very credible uh, singer-songwriter, and actually far exceeded his acting ability as a singer and songwriter. So there was a case of a guy who actually became a better singer and songwriter than he ever was an actor. I said hello to Mary Lou She belongs to me Sang a song about a honky-tonk It was time to leave But it's all right now I learned my lesson well You see, you can't please everyone So you got to please yourself I think there's a certain amount of resentment among uh, hardworking musicians, especially those who are kind of the journeymen, when they see somebody who's a thoroughly mediocre talent, like a Russell Crowe or a Gary yeah. Sinise, great actor but not a very good blues man, you know, kind of swoop in and they have their band, you know, yeah. and, every, and they're Bruce playing Willis. The, the same thing. There's 100 bars in the city tonight <laughs> and there's 90 bands that sound just like this and who is this guy up there doing this? I think I, mean, I was thinking a lot about what works. I think one of the things that works is when you have child stars – who uh, maybe were made to act before they were even cognizant of what the whole world would entail, who later go on to make music. I think that something, you know, a lot of great musicians come from messed up uh, childhoods. (laughs) And and there's been a a number of credible uh, people who went on from the the, the child star world into the rocker world. Brandon Cruz, right, that kid from the courtship of Eddie's father, went on to uh, front a really credible punk rock band, Dr. No. He got got all muscled up and and also (laughs) sang with the Dead Kennedys for a while. I'm busting down the doors of the Vinitian I'm busting down the door just to see where I am now, yeah You say it, but I'm not the best or the worst Just looking for the smiling man He's so wicked and he's so full of soul I'm gonna bust the bubble of the Superman 
But I'll tell you one of my favorites, child actor. I think he was only 17 when he appeared in John Sayles' Mate Wan, Will Oldham, who is yeah. you know now legendary in the uh, indie rock world for recording under a million names, Bonnie Prince Billy and yeah, the yeah. Palace Brothers and Palace. But the guy, I think, is much more of a musician than an actor. Oh, no, I see darkness. Oh, no, I see darkness. Did you know how much I love you? Is a hope that somehow you, you can save me from this darkness. So I think when you had actors who uh, kind of weren't doing it almost involuntarily, you know, what they really wanted to do was sing, and then they go on to get to do that, that's a much more credible career than, for example, uh, Mila Jovovich deciding, I'm a great yeah. actress and a model, so therefore I can also sing. I could do that too, and the, the latest example of that, uh, Jim, is uh, Scarlett Johansson, a, uh, you know, a terrific actress, really. Uh, she came out with this record this year, Anywhere I Lay My Head, and I knew we were in for trouble, because a couple of years ago at Coachella, she comes out and sings backing vocals with the Jesus and Mary Jane. I go, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah. what's this? <laughs> all about. Anywhere I Lay My Head is essentially a covers album. It's Scarlett Johansson doing her interpretation of Tom Waits songs. <laughs> and you're going, oh my God, who this, put her up to this? Yeah, this is a bad idea right from the get-go. And it's almost like she becomes another instrument in the whole palette of instruments here. It's not really a Scarlett Johansson record. It's almost like she's the brand on the cover to sell the record, but it's really not about her. She's sort of sunk back into the arrangements. You can't really tell if she can sing or not, which I guess is the point. This is because she cannot sing. I, I think it's revealing that in the end, quality will out. Warner Brothers did a huge push behind that Scarlett Johansson record, and it sold exactly half. It was released the same week as the She and Him record, and it sold only half. So uh, She and Him, an indie rock project by mm-hmm. an actress who I think is a very credible musician. Right. So there's no, no question. It's a deserved acclaim, and it does prove that maybe quality wins out once in a while. Picture yourself in a boat. On a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you. You answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. You're listening to Sound Opinions. a song called International from the group Brazilian Girls on their third album, New York City. None of them are from Brazil, Greg. That has to be said up front in every review of this band. But the lead singer, Sabina Sciuba, is in fact uh, international. Mm -hmm. She was born in Rome. She was raised in Nice and Munich. And this group came together. She came together with the three male partners in the band in the Brooklyn underground dance scene. They're starting with some familiar beginning points here that we've heard a lot of lately. The 50s 
lounge exotica space age bachelor pad music of uh, Martin Denny and Esquival and Ima Sumac combined with the 70s kraut rock the early synthesizer bands like Kraftwerk that's the same place where Stereo Lab starts out but uh, Brazilian girls are much more dance oriented much more digital much more about the computer rhythms than the familiar rock pulse this record is uh, as polyglot I think as the title city there New York City embraces many cultures she speaks five languages and uses all of them at different points in these lyrics. Let's hear a song and then get into our thoughts on this band. This is the tune called Good Time from Brazilian Girls New York City on Sound Opinions. Good time on Sound Opinions from the Brazilian Girls' third record, New York City. Jim, as you mentioned, uh, New York City is a uh, perfect title for this band and for this album. You've got all these little tour stops. You know, they're in St. Petersburg, they're in Berlin, they're in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. and there's a sound for each of those. They have this electronic vibe going out. There's a danceable vibe to it, but it's a more sultry thing. I think their first two records were a little bit more energetic, a little bit more up-tempo, a little bit more dance-oriented. I hear this, with the exception of that song we just played, Good Time, as well as Losing Myself, which is kind of another punky song on the record. It's pretty much of an electronic chill-out record, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. really doesn't have a lot to say. It is great background music, but that's all I would confine it to. I think there's right. a lot of bands in the pocket of Devachka, Gogol, Bordello, Yesayer, who are doing a similar kind of thing with uh, better songwriting. How can you say they have nothing to say? Did you miss that line in Good Time? <laughs> Some people just want to lie on beaches in the Caribbean. Some people want to do crazy things with green amphibians. There you go. That's, that's the best. That's the extent of their message. That is the best frog <laughs> lyric I've heard since Robin Hitchcock. Um, look, I think this is the hit of the summer. Good Time is a wonderful, I mean, the heck with Lollipop. I'm I'm really grooving on this. I love the this kind of chill out. This from a man out. who hates summer, right? 
I do hate summer, but as long as I'm inside in the air conditioning, uh, <laughs> drinking an iced espresso, I want to be listening to Brazilian girls. Right. Sabina made me a fan at Lollapalooza. She came out basically dressed in a cloud, you know, <laughs> and played in the middle yeah. of the day to a crowd of 20,000 people who could care less, had no idea who she was, and she won them over. This woman is equal parts, I think, uh, both on record and on stage, of Nico from the Velvet Underground, Serge Gainsbourg's duet partner, Jane Birkin, and Astrid Gilberto. She's alluring, but she's also threatening. Yeah. Um, is a persona that comes through on those songs, even if the lyrics are perhaps just toss-off. And I just love the vibe and the groove. This is definitely, on the buy-it-burn-it-trash-it scale, a buy-it for me. I'm not as enthused. I, uh, it's great for swinging in the hammock, but I could think of a dozen records that I'd hear just as soon, including a bunch of the ones you just named. So I'm going to give it a burn-it. Scott, what do we have on Sound Opinions next week? Next week, Jim, very exciting stuff. An interview with Tony Visconti, the man who worked with David Bowie and T-Rex in the 70s. As always, Sound Opinions has been produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Dylan Peterson is our intern. Sarah Toulouse recorded She and Him. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, another child actor gone bad. He was one of the sweat hogs on Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Where you at, boy? Where you at, boy? At the tone, please record your message. Oh. New messages. Uh, hi, guys. This is Alan calling from Los Angeles. I listen to the podcast. Going back a couple of shows, The Hold Steady. I'm amazed by this band. Now, you didn't like this, this album as much as the one before. That's fine. Neither do I. But I still appreciate it. However, how is this an indie band? If this album had come out in, like, 1979, these guys are on tour with Foreigner. This is arena rock, late 70s stuff, and all the indie kids are looking at it like it's fresh and new. It's so retro. It want to make big of my head want to explode. All right, keep it going. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, loving every minute of the show. Lord, I'm discouraged. The circles have sucked down Lord, I'm discouraged Her new friends have shadowed her life Hi, my name is Nick Mizlock, and I was just commenting on the piece about artists releasing songs just for ad companies, like the Double Mint Gums. And I think it's just a case of artists expanding their enterprises. I mean, in the time of plunging record sales and the record industry, you know, having an a fate that we don't even know now. Uh, artists are just expanding and trying to do other things to make money, basically. I'm a musician myself in Chicago, and I just you just see artists not just making records for themselves anymore, just records to be sold. They're doing a lot of other different kinds of things. And 
This is that case. It's capitalism at its best. Thanks so much. now i'm originally from jacksonville florida and uh, must be at least 15 years older than the black kids because there was an amazing club that was around for a little over 10 years from the 80s to the 90s called einstein agogo and when that club closed i think the music in jacksonville stopped all the things you referenced suede the cure you could throw in like super chunk the smiths every time i go back to jacksonville the music has stagnated exactly in that moment and I think the black kids certainly overhyped, but that music is very, those musical influences are very sincere and sound exactly like my teenager dumb. And I am so glad uh, that they have replaced Limp Biscuit and Leonard Skinner as uh, the Jacksonville band du jour. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is Ed calling from Lexington, Kentucky comment on uh, your show about all bands doing album tracks and indulging in nostalgia. You mentioned the Sex Pistols doing a reunion and performing their old stuff. Keep in mind that the Sex Pistols were a manufactured band from the get-go. They were basically the monkeys with bad teeth, so there's nothing at all surprising about them trying to capitalize on their career, which was kind of a sham to begin with. Thanks a lot. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Tonight.